It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of charts at Billboard. Joining me, as always, is Billboard Deputy Editor Digital, Katie Atkinson. Hey, Keith. How you doing? I am wonderful, because today we will be talking about... Radiohead's OK Computer, a classic album, if I do say so myself. So stick around for that in just a moment, because the Billboard Pop Shop podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be discussing the 20th anniversary of Radiohead's OK Computer with Andy Green of Rolling Stone. And bonus, Andy wrote Rolling Stone's recent cover story about the 20th anniversary of OK Computer. The guys will be talking about Andy's experiences, profiling the band, about the band's evolving relationship with the album, and what the album's legacy is likely to be 20 years from now. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode, and give us a rating or review while you're at it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to tweet us at Keith underscore Caulfield or at KT Atkinson. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So, Katie, I asked you this earlier as we were preparing, but... You are a big fan of Radiohead. Huge fan. I feel and like you've seen them live, like, really close them, up, right? Yeah, I had, yes. We've spoken about that on the, yes. the podcast before. Now it's all coming back to me. And uh, OK Computer is the album that got me into them. Well, That's the one I started with. Well, I, I think a lot of people did. And uh, would you believe that it's hmm. actually their biggest selling album in the U.S.? I would. So it, clearly there were a lot of us that were like, let's get on the Radiohead train with this <laughs> album. Um, it has actually sold 2.6 million copies in the United States, according to Nielsen Music, even though it only actually peaked at number 21 on the Billboard 200 chart. However, the album actually spent more than a year on the chart, and it garnered a Grammy Award nomination for Album of the Year. It's a spectacular album, and I remember listening to it a lot on repeat when I was in high school, and then going back and discovering the album before, and then going forward and being a huge fan after that as well. Yeah. So, you know, Radiohead, always great. And now you can hear all about them on Coming Around Again. (laughs) 
Hello, and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast discussing anniversaries being celebrated in the music world. Uh, and this week, we're talking about Radiohead's OK Computer, one of the most acclaimed albums in the 90s. Uh, n- not a commercial blockbuster when first released, at least in this country, uh, but uh, one that's kind of come to be seen as Radiohead's masterpiece, one of the great rock albums of the 90s, maybe one of the great rock albums, period. Uh, and here to talk about it with us, we have uh, Andy Green, senior writer at Rolling Stone, who recently did like a really awesome profile of the album, uh, the time to its 20th anniversary, which is coming up. Well, it's either coming up or it's already happened. This is this is sort of the one of the weird things about OK Computer. It uh, turned technically turned twenty uh, last May twenty first when it was released in Japan twenty years earlier. But uh, Friday, June sixteenth in the UK, and then Canada and the US a couple weeks after that. But we're we're, we're going to talk about it this week. So thanks for joining us, Andy. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing all right. So yeah, I really really like this profile. It's, Thank it's really. You. Really interesting look both at what the band was like in 1997, what they're like today, and how much things have kind of changed for them over the, the, the two decades in between. Uh, before, before we really get into that, I'm curious about your own kind of history with the band. I mean, are you a longtime Radiohead fan? Yeah, I remember I first really became aware of them at the last show of the tour then. I was at the, of the OK Computer Tour. Yeah. Okay. In 98, I went to the Tibetan Freedom concert and I was in 10th grade. That's right. And they came on, and I'm like, wait, it's those guys in the video with. The grocery cart and the weird aisles. And then then they played Crepe at the end. And I'm like, oh, it's the same band that did that old song. Oh. Yeah, they, they evolved pretty quickly in five years' time. Yeah. yeah. And then I bought the album. And I was like, holy shit. I became a big fan. So, so you were in pretty much right away on, on OK Computer. Well, no. It was in 98. Well, no. But, but as soon yeah, as yes. you heard it. Yeah. yeah. I was a big, okay. big time fan. I bought Kid A in college the day mm-hmm. it came out. And I've been a super fan ever since. So, okay, computer it took a little bit longer for me. I mean, I, I was only, I think, I was I guess I was eleven when it when it came out in the states. And uh, Paranoid Android, I was not ready for at the time. I, I was a big fan of, of the Benz and specifically the singles from the Benz. Like you, you kind of alluded to, Fake Plastic Trees there right. and uh, Street Spirit. I, mean, I think one of my first ever screen names was Fade Out, yeah. Fade Out ninety five, <laughs> based on based on Street Spirit uh, and. I loved all those singles, but uh, OK Computer, you know, it, it, Paranoid Android specifically was was really intense, and the video was this this uh, very kind of graphic, animated right. six minute odyssey that uh, had a lot of surrealist elements. It was, it was, it was a very strange, even by by the, the standards of the band at the time, it was a very strange video. Uh, but uh, I think Karma Police got me more on board. That was that was that was more of an accessible yeah, song. It was a crazy move to have the first single off the album be Parrot Android. Yeah, and do a video that was so bizarre. I mean, yeah, they, they've they've gone on to describe it as like a Bohemian Rhapsody meets Happiness is a Warm Gun, and right. it's it's not exactly for for radio consumption. I don't think it didn't, it didn't even chart in the U.S. I don't think, although I guess it was a it was actually a pretty big hit in the U.K. But, yeah. But, but yeah, I didn't know any of this at the time. I mean, I, even the concept of OK Computer as like like I, like I had no concept for of, of critical acclaim at the time. I was still very much like a, a young uh, rock fan, and I, I took the the album kind of on its own merits. And it took me a little while to come around to. But then, yeah, by by the time of Kid A, I was obviously hugely on board. And uh, yeah, I would say it's, it's it's certainly one of the best albums of its period. So uh, when, when you got when you when you knew this was going to be a, a story for Rolling Stone, was it assigned to you? How did how did you come about to be the the writer for the story? remember we were talking to their publicist a few months ago, maybe even six months ago, and they were telling us about the box set. Mm-hmm. And I think they casually mentioned, hey, it would possibly be a cool cover story. And I went to my editors and I'm like, hey, I think this would be pretty cool. You know, and just wheels started to turn and I got assigned it. I was kind of nervous at first because I've talked, I've talked to most of, I've, I've talked to so many people, but never them. 
and they just they seemed a bit scary to me. Yeah, I mean, was it surprising to you to even sort of realize this was on the table? I mean, this is such a kind of a famously media reticent band. The yeah, fact that they're pitching you like, hey, do you want to do the story with us? That must have become something of a surprise. Yeah, because they put out a moon shaped pool. This was last year, mm-hmm. and they did no press for it. You know, they did no interviews. Right. You know, so I figured they were kind of in this, like, Beyonce period of, like, <laughs> post-press. Sure, yeah. Uh, so and they're one, of the, they're one of the few bands that could still get away with that and, and, and not yeah. have really affect, you know, any, any, any of their media right. exposure. But I realized that, that, that they're more comfortable talking about the past than the present. Wow. You know, because sort of, you know, with Tom's partner dying and everything, this is just sort of, there's some uncomfortable stuff they don't want it to, 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 to share publicly. Right. There's even a couple of moments in your piece where you, you kind of get a couple of the members, you know, the, the, the wheels start turning for them and then they kind of stop themselves and say, actually, you know, we don't want to talk about it. Yeah, that. no, it was a dicey thing to kind of tiptoe around when I was reporting it. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. When I was assigned it, I was excited. I was nervous that I wouldn't get much time with them. I was nervous they'd be difficult. I was nervous all around, but they were pretty accessible. I mean, I was surprised. Yeah, and, and it's, it sounds like you got like a pretty good amount of time with all all five members, yeah. right? Yeah, I flew out to the Greek theater in Berkeley because between Coachella's they did two they did two nights at the Greek theater, mm-hmm. and I spoke to Colin and Ed on the first show, and at the second show I talked to Phil and Johnny. Then I flew back to L.A. about a week later, and I got Tom for like two hours. So it was, was there one member that? that you, you enjoy talking to particularly or maybe surprisingly like one member that really kind of opened up and got I, all the good stuff. I enjoyed all of them. I found Colin and Ed were the best talkers. Okay. Ed was very, he spoke in like perfect paragraphs, <laughs> very British, really tall and just, just really, he was, he was very quotable. He's very honest mm-hmm. where Colin was very laid back and very funny. And I, and the most open to just share anything I felt like. Okay. Where, but all of them, all of them were were excited about the opportunity to talk about this this album of theirs. And Johnny was a bit lives. tricky. <laughs> I I love Johnny Greenwood, and mm-hmm. he was some of the best quotes. When I read it later, when I was talking to him, it was difficult. He, you know, he just sort of, he just he sort of mutters. He was looking down at his feet a lot. He was just sort of. I don't think that he loved talking about the past. These aren't guys that sit around a lot and are talking about twenty years ago. Sure. So, and it, it seemed like in the piece, he's the one that that seems to have kind of. I don't know, maybe traveled the least distance from those days emotionally. Like he, he still very much seems to be in that space of, uh, you know, resisting being a band, resisting being a guitarist. Yeah, like, he challenged me on everything. The point that he challenged <laughs> the idea that he plays guitar. Like even that, yeah, I can was see it. I can see you holding it in your yeah, hands. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I'm like Johnny. I just saw an entire concert a minute ago. You're playing guitar most of it, you know. But he, he wouldn't even concede that. That's pretty crazy. But but on the flip side of that. Uh, I think a lot of people would be surprised, and I certainly was, at kind of how how dramatically Tom's perspective has changed on those days to the point where he, like, looks at, like, old pictures of himself and he says, you know, lighten the fuck up, kid. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. I asked him one question that gave me so much stuff. I was just, like, what advice do you think that you'd give Tom back then? Mm-hmm. And he just went off. He was, like, lighten the fuck up and then went in this whole rant where he was, like, talking to himself for a while from back then. <laughs> and it was great. Yeah, he was much funnier than I thought he'd be. Like, what, what do you attribute that to? Like, what, what, do you, what do you think it is about this guy that, that's changed over the years that, that leads him to have this kind of really much healthier perspective on, on what was a pretty intense period in his life? I think he sort of, like, won the war. I mean, there was so many years of struggle for him where he was being bombarded by the press and he was young and he couldn't deal with it. He was overwhelmed. He's had time now to really work at his own pace. He's totally mm-hmm. in charge of that band in a lot of ways. He decides when they tour for how long. 
and he, and he has so much control on his life now that he's happier. And like, how much of a surprise did it, did it come as to you to, to see him in this space? I was surprised because the time I know is for meeting people is easy. Right. It's this like miserable malcontent. Who, oh, the pain in the world. My, my band is so beloved. I'm selling so <laughs> many records. The press loves me so much. Oh, this is it's been called the best album of, of the year. Oh, the pain of that. You know, just living in agony of like success. Yeah, I've, I've never actually. So meeting people is easy. Yeah. Is I think directed by Grant G is a, yes. a documentary that came out. You know, about a year after OK Computer, maybe. Yeah, it was where it, it documents the kind of the, the the craziness of that period in Radiohead's life on on tour and and doing lots of media engagements that they had absolutely no desire to be part of. Uh, I've, I've actually never seen that movie, but like, did so? Does he come off in that movie? Like, does it, does he come off kind of unlikable as, as, as this sort of self pitying rock star that doesn't realize how good he has it? To some degree, he also just comes off as an agony, like. Mm-hmm. You know, and what's not quite given the context was they've been on tour for five straight years. He was right. living on a tour bus. And there's no privacy. There's no time to your two yourself. He's been doing interviews all day long and playing the same songs every night, month after month after month after month. This is mm-hmm. a this is a sensitive, shy guy that was just kind of pushed too far. But the band was kind of telling me them the movie paints a sort of warped picture of what it was like back then because they all told me that they had lots of fun. Whereas the movie, there's no moments of lightness mm-hmm. or euphoria. It's just misery, basically. <laughs> well, th- I guess that was kind of the easier narrative to sell about Radiohead at the time. You know, they have this album about, you know, a, you know premillennial alienation and angst and kind of, uh, you know, just, 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 just overall fear right. of, of living in the modern world. And so, yeah, you, yeah. you don't want to see them in this movie like, yeah. playing beer pong. Or, right. Like, and they weren't Oasis and they right. hated Oasis. And they didn't want to project this rock star vibe at all. And that's definitely one way that they have not yet mellowed out is in their uh, dealings with Oasis and Britpop no, and, and that period of guitar rock in I, general. I would just say the word I would say the word Britpop in front of any of them and their faces would just crush. <laughs> they hate it. Which is interesting because I, I don't know if you saw, yeah. you know, Pitchfork uh, recently did a list of, I think, the, the 50 best Britpop albums, the 50 uh-huh. best albums of the Britpop era. And it's a pretty loosely defined yeah. list. And, they, you know, it has, like, you know, Morrissey albums and, and yeah. maybe, I think maybe Bill and Sebastian, like, definitely albums that weren't considered part of that moment. But it also has at least one, maybe multiple Radiohead albums on it. Yeah. I mean, they were peers with those groups. Mm-hmm. They were the same exact age. They appealed to the same fan base. They're playing the same festivals. But it was different. <laughs> Yeah, certainly, and I, I guess you could almost even look at this album as being you know, maybe not the you know the end point of that era, but kind of in its own way, sort of an analog yeah. to where, where you consider where Oasis was at the yeah. time. You know, I went to the library and got all these back issues of the the British magazines of sure. that summer, and it was fascinating because all the focus was on Oasis is recording "Be Here Now," and this album <laughs> will change mankind. It was right. week after week after week, this breathless wait for "Be Here Now" because the thought was, "Hey, you know, this will be their Sergeant Pepper." Right. This, this is going to be the album of its generation. Yeah. And meanwhile, then there's small articles about Radiohead, <laughs> but that's not what happened. Yeah, yeah so. and and it's it's interesting when you look at kind of like British rock in 1997 in general. As as I'm sure you know. It, as all of the attention was being heaped onto Oasis, there were any number of, of kind of smaller bands recording albums that still that people still talk about twenty years later. Uh, you know, whether you know Spiritualized or, or Corner Shop, Primal Scream, just just or, right. They're Scottish, but uh, the, uh, there were the, you know this was a really interesting moment in British rock history that was almost being totally ignored yeah. while everyone was waiting for them for the third Oasis album. Yeah, 
And those bands that you mentioned, they were all huge in the UK and a big following. Stateside, there's almost none of them got any traction. Yeah. It was just Oasis and Blur to a much lesser degree, which is what we reduced the whole Britpop scene to here for in a lot of ways. So in, in addition to talking to all five members of Radiohead for this, you also talked to, to Nigel Godrich, their producer, and you got a couple really, really interesting secondary interviews. Uh, and I say any piece where you can talk to Alanis Morissette, Michael Stipe, and Jane Seymour, uh, better known as Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, that, that's, that's, that's a pretty good yeah. get. It's super funny to me that the shooting schedule for Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman played a role in the making <laughs> of this album because she was in, she was in Los Angeles. So she had, she had this huge house that she had to rent to people to, to pay the bills for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and she ended up renting it to Radiohead. Yes, right? yes, and there's, yes, there's yes. Stories yes. about it maybe being haunted and. Uh... Oh yeah, I have many more stories of right. that that I couldn't even run in the thing. There are many ghost stories. <laughs> They're just surprising. I thought Radiohead would be that they that they wouldn't believe in ghosts, but they all do. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a favorite of the other people you talked to outside of the band? Uh, I love Nigel Godrich, but he's almost their sixth member. Yeah. I think Michael Stipe because they worship him. And they saw him as like their godfather in this time period, and he was a real voice to to Tom of just serenity. He he'd been there, he knew what he was going through, and he was just very helpful to Tom. And then to, to just talking to me through what he would tell Tom. So uh, as you're you're researching this project, and I'm, I'm sure you you spent any number of hours you know, listening to it, you know, you said mm-hmm. you're researching old magazines, watching the movie again. Yeah. Uh, how much of how much of your understanding of the album itself kind of changed over that period? What what about it surprised you or hit you in a different way twenty years earlier? I went into it thinking it was sort of a concept album about the dangers of technology and mm-hmm. how it was dehumanizing. And they and they push back against that so hard, Tom especially, that I, I like believe him. I think the mm-hmm. narrative was a lot in the media's head and in my head as a fan. Uh, but Tom was so insistent. It was really about just my weariness would travel. I was so <laughs> sick of being on the fucking bus. And it, I was using the language of technology to sort of show that. But but he but he swore to me that he loved technology, that he had, he loved the internet back then, and 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 he wasn't trying to make a broad point about that, which surprised me. Also surprised me is how traditional a lot of it sounds. They track live for the most part. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, they use some drum samples or just, there's a few things. But next to Kid A, it's like. Yeah, it's, it's a rock album. Like this is also the thing that's kind of struck me listening to it. Not not so much in the yeah. last couple of weeks, but but over the years is that you know you you go five years without listening to it, and it kind of builds up this this almost mythic sonic stature in your head where you think, oh man, this is such a, such an innovative album, yeah. such a such a mind bending studio album. Then you listen to it, and it's basically a bunch of rock songs. Now they're they're very imaginative rock songs. Yeah, and they use the studio in new and interesting ways, but. Yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. It's it's not this kind of genre bending, uh, yeah. unclassifiable, yeah. sort of weird, unprecedented thing. Yeah, they made it the same way that Zeppelin made Zeppelin Four. <laughs> just go to some huge mansion and track live for for yeah. a few weeks. Uh, so yeah, what surprised me was how traditional it sounds when you think it's this huge leap forward. It just they're really great songs, 
you know, and from and on the very beginning of it, you know, when they go into airbag, then the, then the drums they kick in. You know, mm-hmm. that's a drum loop that they work. So there's always oh. there's there's little moments throughout. Yeah, it's, it's subtler than you than you yeah. maybe remember. Yeah, whereas Kid A, you know, obviously was a whole different story. Yeah, so how how much of of, of that kind of change in, in your, your perspective on it is due to the, the fact that they did get much more dramatic in their in their sonic leaps, uh, specifically with Kid A and their next album, and kind of for the rest of their career after that. Yeah, I I think that played a big role in it. You mm-hmm. know, in my view of it, and what's funny was talking to the group. I I didn't include this in the story. This isn't something I'm, I'm doing later. Mm-hmm. But I asked Tom about all the copycat bands that came on the scene in the very late '90s. You know, Travis and Coldplay. Sure. There's all of a sudden the flood of these bands, and he hates those bands, <laughs> and he's very clear about that. And he said that he knew that they couldn't keep doing it because on the radio it was all these clones, right? All, all these people doing kind of more accessible versions of what, and, what they were already yeah, doing. Yeah, like Travis. They got Nigel Godrich, and they made the Man Who, and yeah. they basically made like a Benz album, <laughs> and it was huge. You know, but they were but with Radiohead, they they were smart enough to know that we we can't keep doing this. Now, one of the other things that makes this era so much fun to revisit, at least for me, and, and especially with this reissue coming up, is just kind of. The larger universe of OK Computer, you know, it, it's so much more that year than than just the twelve songs on that album, because there's there's so many B sides uh, uh, that were you know eventually collected on the Airbag EP right. and, and all and all these these songs that were unreleased at the time, but uh, kind of circulated on fan bootlegs through you know live performances yeah. of songs like Lift and it was, Follow Me Around and this Tom tapped into a really rich songwriting vein. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he writes best on tours. So he was always on tours, so he was just spewing <laughs> out these songs. So and as he was being years. turned inside out personally, he was having one of the greatest creative periods of probably any songwriter yeah. in the 20th century. I have a copy of the Super Deluxe Box set, and it comes mm-hmm. with stacks of his notebooks from back then. So you see just pages wow. of his lyrics and everything. The coolest thing, in addition to all of the outtakes on the box set, there's 80 minutes of his demo tapes from back then. Wow. So you hear Nude in his first incarnation. You hear Motion Picture Soundtrack when it's just him and the piano. <laughs> you hear him first sketching out Paranoid Android on the guitar. Mm-hmm. So you, you really get, you get a sense that he had reached a real great place as a songwriter. And that's the really crazy thing is how these songs keep popping up uh, 10 years later, 20 years later. You, you mentioned a Nude, which I think was called uh, Getting the, Big Ideas the, right. back, in that, back in those days. But 10 years later, it shows up on their In Rainbows album as Nude. And it's probably one of the best and most acclaimed songs on that album. Uh, and then just last year, uh, you have True Love Waits, which was also a song they played live a bunch of times around this period. Right. Uh, and that shows up on Moonshade Pool as the closing track. And, and now uh, with OK Not OK, which is the, the, the 20th anniversary reissue that you just referred to with the, in the box set. And there's, I guess there's a number of different versions of that reissue coming out. Uh, you have a couple of these songs uh, like like Lift right. and uh, Promise that that and are Man of War, Man of War that, yeah. that are that are being heard in their studio version for the first time, and it's almost as exciting for Radiohead fans as getting brand right. new songs. And I was talking about that to Phil Selway, the drummer, and he was like, the label back in '96, they heard Lift, they heard Man of War, and they heard I Promise, and they go, okay, great, you know, I more songs I, like this, please. Yeah. I'm hearing songs that work so well uh, on the radio. Mm-hmm. Then they follow the album, and they're and they're all and and they're all not there, right? And they were, you know, they were they were livid. Do you think that those those songs would have changed the album significantly? I mean, I I, I, I think I saw like a quote either from yeah. from Ed or from Phil saying yeah. that uh, like it would have given the, the album new commercial life. Is is that true? Does that check out to you? I think if they may lift the first single mm-hmm. and they pushed it properly and they made a real video for it, then then that could have changed things. But they weren't really trying for hits or anything. They right. really saw the album as a cohesive art form. They got into huge fights, eh? but even the track listing of it, 
you know, this was really conceived as a hole. And they didn't want a creep or anything to come out of it and just distort everything. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, it's interesting to me that uh, that electioneering has almost become the creep from this album for them. They hate it. It's so funny. Do you think they it's were... the lyrics or what is it? that? Uh... I think it's just too guitar-y. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they haven't played it in 19 years. I don't think that they will again. If I'd say to them... They'd scrunch their faces. Even they do not like that song. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, I, I guess some some of the the, the political uh, you know, verses on that album haven't really aged that well. They're kind of on the nose and and, and sort of broad strokes. Yeah, but it's surprising that they would single that song out specifically as the reason they don't want to play this album live all the way through. Yeah, and I just don't think that they want to be a, a like nostalgia band that's mm-hmm. playing albums straight through. So, so you've heard, I presume, the the new tracks on this, or the new old tracks on the yes. reissue. Uh-huh. Uh, does Lift kind of live up to the expectations? It's pretty great. It's just Tom's demos are the things I keep playing. Okay. It's, like, it's like Pete Townsend's Scoop series. You get to see all these songs in their in their most raw form on the tour bus and soundcheck. And that, to me, is the most exciting part of the whole box set, is, is hearing that stuff. Right. Is, is there, like, one song in specific that stands out as, like, like the one that will totally change your perception of one of them? There's a motion picture soundtrack. Okay. I had no idea it was even from back then. And just him with the piano and the national anthem. They play an early national anthem at a soundcheck or something. I had no idea it was from back then. And me neither. And it sounds like it, you know, like it would have fit on the album. You mm-hmm. know, it was a very different vibe to it. And it's just fascinating. And is there anything left at this point? Are there songs that like still to be unearthed that you remember from the period? That... I th- I think this box set scrapes the barrel pretty clean. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping when they did they did when they do Kid A, they'll do a box set you know in like three years off off of that, or maybe one combining the Kid A and Amnesiac. And Amnesiac yeah, yeah, that that could be really cool. There's certainly a lot of great besides off that album too. Oh yeah. Uh, so of you know you, you spend so much time with this album. Do you think it stands as the best Radiohead album? No, I think the Kid A is their best album. <laughs> Is that because it kind of innovates in a way that this album does, that it's more clear now that this album never quite did in the first place? Uh, I just think the songs are stronger. It's more cohesive. Mm-hmm. There's not a weak spot, and they were just so ballsy. I think there's there's a lot of bands that could have made an album close to OK Computer. There's no one that that was capable mm-hmm. of doing Kid A besides them. And do you think that you know? I would say talking about this album in 2017, this is probably considered to be their masterpiece still. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe there's a generational divide at a certain point. But mm-hmm. do you think that when we have this conversation again 20 years from now, that Kid A will kind of overtake yeah, I OK think Computer? Kid a, in, in the I, think, I think in Rainbows. People love in Rainbows. And it seems to be aging very well. That's interesting to me. Maybe just because of the place where I was in my yeah. life when that album came out, I, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't able to be impacted by a Radiohead album in the right. same way. Yeah. But that album never seemed to me to be quite on the level. No, of, I agree with you. I think Hell of the Thief is even better. I love Hell of the Thief. Do you, do you think that time will kind of make OK Computer more of a relic than it, than it seems now? It feels a little 90s to me. A little times. bit. I'll just, yeah. It, it's not nearly as much so as the Benz, mm-hmm. which sounds to me a bit dated and sort of of its moment. But when they talked with the Benz, they said, look, we had no experience and, and we had no time. You know, that was super rushed. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the first album they really had time to make it the way they wanted was OK Computer. Yeah, I was talking to my friends about this album recently, and they were talking about a lot about uh, like the like the posters you would see like around college dorm rooms of, of like like the fitter, happier lyrics. Oh out. yeah, and, and like I, I feel like maybe that's one of the reasons why this album seems so '90s now is that like this kind of established Radioheads like persona 
as this like very uh, angsty sort of uh, you know pre-millennial paranoia band yeah and like future albums that you know they, they were less packaged I, I think like to, to sell Radiohead is that idea yeah so maybe they, they have aged better because they aren't quite so dated to that moment yeah. in time yeah by the time of Kid A they had complete power mm-hmm. over everything over the marketing you know so they were less tied into those images that were sort of we associate so much with oh okay, computer or everywhere all the billboards and shit do you have a favorite song off the album? It changes, and I got a bit sick of it for a while after <laughs> months and months. With Can't it. imagine why. Yeah, the one if I had to pick one, uh, it might be "Lucky," which is okay. sort of funny because that was recorded two years earlier, and it's not really part of the album in a real way. It, it was released in '95, you know, on the mm-hmm. War Child soundtrack. Right. But that to me really is the best, probably. And I guess the the uh, an outlier about being about it. In, uh, an airplane crash instead of an auto crash. Yeah, I sort of like the symmetry that the album starts on a car crash, then the second last song is a, is mm-hmm. a plane crash. So, are, are you one of the people that thinks that the album would be better without the tourist? I I love the tourist. I like the little bell sound at the very end. <laughs> that, that the last thing sound. is a triangle. Sure. And and the story that Tom told me, I never heard that mm-hmm. the barking dog on the street in Berlin is one spire that. So there's been so much interpretation of what the slowdown was, but it's right. just certain people talking out of like their asses. You know? There's <laughs> actually, you know, like the barking dog in the song is a barking dog. <laughs> yeah. well, never any shortage of people talking out their asses when it comes to radio. Oh, yeah. Right? So. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andy Green, for coming on. Of course. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah. The radio has 20th anniversary. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. That's finally coming up. And uh, check out the OK Not OK, I guess, when it comes to stores next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.